I grab mine, and as I get my stool, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Um, we have been in uh, a series uh, for the new year called Growth, God's Way, and uh, we have been exploring the idea of church growth. Um, not just church growth numerically, although it's included in that. We've been exploring the idea of healthy churches. Uh, we've been exploring the idea of what healthy churches do. Uh, what do churches do that experience growth in God's way? Uh, what are some of the things that characterize them? What are some of the things that they uh, participate in? Uh, what are some of the things that they don't do? What are some of the things that they avoid? And so we have begun, uh, and we've seen part one and part two of Growth God's Way. Uh, part one of Growth God's Way, a couple weeks ago we saw that growth, uh, churches that experience growth in God's way know their mission. And we saw that from Acts 1.8. We, they know what it is that they're supposed to do. Last Sunday in part two, um, we saw that churches that experience growth God's way um, are devoted to prayer. And we saw that out of chapters, uh, chapter one, verses 12 through 14. And we saw the early church waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, waiting to be clothed from power on high, waiting to go about their mission of being witnesses in all the world and what they were characterized by, uh, the author of the book of Acts, Acts Luke, tells us is that they were devoted to prayer. And so this morning, we're going to see part three of Growth God's Way. And if you're taking notes, um, uh, go ahead and jot down this title. Uh, Churches that experience growth God's way present a clear gospel. Churches that experience the kind of growth that the church is meant to experience present a clear gospel gospel. And we will see that out of the second chapter of the book of Acts. And so if you're with me, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, is where we are going to pick up. Just to catch you up with uh, where we're going to be in the book of Acts, a couple things have happened since we left uh, the disciples in the early church in the book of Acts. Um, They decided that since Judas um, betrayed Jesus, they needed a twelfth witness. Uh, They needed an eyewitness. And so at the tail end of chapter 1, you see the early church uh, choosing a new apostle, if you will. Then we get uh, the fascinating story, the pivotal moment in the book of Acts, I think, begins in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to see uh, that, the Pentecost experience, um, but we're going to see the tail end of that. Uh, But what what happens is the disciples are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and uh, what they do is they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, There are flaming tongues that uh, sit on them. They begin to speak in languages that are foreign languages that they are not familiar with, and there are men and women from uh, Jews uh, in Jerusalem Jerusalem for Pentecost who speak other languages and they begin to hear uh, that these early uh, Christians speak of the works of God in other languages and they're amazed at what has happened. And so uh, the crowd uh, is attracted to them, the crowd gathers, and what we have is what we're going to look at this morning, which is the very first account of the disciples being witnesses. Remember, that is what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be witnesses and we see Peter taking up the calling, preaching uh, the very first sermon or the very first witnessing account if you will, in the book of Acts, and Peter is going to preach a sermon. And uh, we're going to find out at the tail end here in a bit that it is a very good sermon. It is a very effective sermon. It is a very direct sermon. It is a very biblical sermon. And it's a sermon uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit blesses because 3,000 people, about 3,000 people, uh, come to place their faith in Jesus Christ on that day. And the early church uh, goes from about uh, 150 to 200 people to 3,000 in an afternoon. And so that's where we're going to be. Acts chapter 2, 
verses 14 through 41. And what we're going to do is, we're not going to read all of Peter's sermon. What I really encourage you to do uh, before you get home to watch the Bears game, hopefully we'll get home in time to watch the Bears game, uh, as several of you have mentioned to me. (laughs) And I should have asked Gary to take the clock down. (laughs) Um, But before you get home, uh, before you watch the Bears game, Read all of Peter's sermon. It's a really good sermon. It's, it's, it's deep and it's rich and full of Old Testament theology and it's focused on Jesus. We're going to take a look at just a portion of Peter's sermon this morning. We're going to read some selected verses. Uh, so before we do that, um, I would ask you to pray with me one more time and uh, we'll ask God to bless our, our time together. Father, um, we need your help. Spirit, we need for you to come and to open our eyes to your truth. We need for you to come and teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us and help us to see the truth that you have for our life. Um, your word is, uh, is, is alive and well and it's relevant to our lives and we desire um, not only to know it but to be changed by it. And so, Spirit, come. Help me uh, to speak accuracy, uh, accurately in words that are true. And uh, Father, help us all to be receptive to your word. Uh, we want to be a people, and we want to be a church. And I want to be a pastor. And these people, I think, want to be believers who understand the gospel. And they want to be people who can share the gospel plainly and clearly. And as Romans 1 says, that it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so when we present a clear gospel message, people's lives are changed. And we want to do that. And so give us help, give us aid. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, There's an author and theologian by the name of Charles Ryrie. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He has a a pretty good study Bible out there called the Ryrie Study Bible. Um, He has written a book called So Great a Salvation. So great is salvation. And and, and the the thrust of his book uh, is essentially asking and answering this question. What is the gospel? What is the good news, which is what gospel means, of Jesus Christ? And he has taken an entire book to flesh out these things. Uh, And in that book, I want to read you a bit of a sampling. Because what he's done is he's taken uh, several uh, examples of gospel presentations and he wants to communicate to the church and to our church um, that there is a lack of clarity. There is a lack of clarity today in our churches and in our lives concerning that central question of what the gospel is. And so he writes this. He says, observe this random sampling of expressions of the gospel uh, taken from tracts and sermons and books in the radio and TV messages... And then he says this, if we gave even half of them, if we gave even half of them to an unsaved person, which and what would he or she be expected to believe? And so this is a really interesting list. I want to share with you this express, these gospel expressions that have been taken uh, from various sources. Number one, uh, one uh, one source says, the clearest statement of the gospel in the New Testament is found in Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. A second one he lists, uh, lists the gospel as this, repent with a godly sorrow in your heart unto the Lord. Another source says the gospel is this, utter the prayer of the prodigal son, ask Jesus to be your Lord and master. 
another one, number four. Uh, it says this, come forward and follow Christ in baptism. Yet another source says, place your hand in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Yet another, find Jesus by praying to him. And the last one he cites says this, he will not, speaking of Jesus, he will not receive us into, into his kingdom until we are ready to turn from all of the sin in our lives. And the point that Dr. Ryrie is making is uh, the point that I really want to make this morning, and that's simply this. In the American evangelical church today, possibly even in, in this church, and possibly even in our lives, there is a lack of clarity as to what essentially the gospel is. I mean, if we were to give a person who is an unbeliever in Jesus Christ these summary statements of, of what the gospel is, which is he or she to believe? Which is right? What is the gospel? This is a clear, essential question that I hope we can answer today. Um, let's do this. Uh, we're going to read one scripture, and so if you have your text, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. It, it won't be up on the screen. We're just going to take one peek at it. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul answers this question for us that is raised by, uh, by Dr. Ryrie. Turn to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul answers this question. We heard it read in our uh, worship time this morning, and I want to reiterate because Paul clearly defines what the good news is. What is the gospel? Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brethren, uh, brothers, of the gospel, there's a key word, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, that is, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Notice the word, first importance. That means this is most important. It's a most important question. What is the gospel? He says that it is this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas then to the 12. And he continues to go on to talk about the resurrection appearances. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we get a very clear statement of what the gospel is. And us as a church, I want us to know what is the good news? We know that our mission is to be witnesses of Jesus, but what are we supposed to say? I mean, what is the gospel message? Paul very clearly defines the gospel message this way. And so if you're taking notes, write this down. The gospel is this. The gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The good news is simply that Jesus died for our sins and that he was resurrected. That's it. That's the gospel. Paul says it's of first importance. And so what I want us to do this morning is to, is to now flip back to the book of Acts. And what we're going to see is what I would call a, a clear gospel presentation. It's, it's a sermon, it's a presentation that Peter gives to the Jews that were there in Jerusalem, many of whom uh, were there at the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to take a look at just bits and pieces of this sermon, uh, just small sections of it. But I think in the bits and pieces of this sermon that we're going to see, we're going to see three elements of a clear gospel presentation. And so if you're taking notes, uh, three elements. I'm going to give these to you just so you'll have them, and then we're going we're to flesh through them. Number one, 
A clear gospel presentation, I think, has three elements. Number one, a clear gospel presentation focuses on Jesus. Number one, a clear gospel presentation focuses on Jesus. Verse 22. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see from Peter's sermon that a clear gospel presentation does this. It includes Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. And so not only does it focus on Jesus, but it includes the fact that Jesus died and Jesus was raised for our sins. Verses 23 and 24. Finally, we're going to see that a clear gospel presentation invites a response. A clear gospel presentation invites a response, and we'll see that from verse 38. So let's do this. Let's read uh, just the select portions of the scripture. Uh, The the text will be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Uh, We're going to read verses 22 and 24, and then we're going to read verses 36 through 41, and then we'll take a look at these three elements. So let's Let's start in verse 22. Peter picks up. He's explained to them in the prior section the phenomenon of the coming of the Spirit and what that entails. And then he picks up on his gospel witness in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God Raise him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And let's skip forward. Skip forward to verse 36. Verse 36, he picks up again after defending the resurrection of Christ and he says this, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, referring to Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then concluding, it says this. And with many other words, he bore witness. Key word, right? Because that's what they were supposed to do. And with many other words, he bore witness, continuing to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a preacher's dream, (laughs) that there would be a response like that. So let's take a look this morning. Three clear elements of the gospel presentation. As I mentioned before, the first element is uh, found in verse 22. And in verse 22, we see Jesus, uh, we see Paul focusing on Jesus. And so, number one, a clear gospel presentation focuses on Jesus. Let's take a look at verse 22 a little bit closer. Notice how Peter begins his sermon. Uh, He addresses the people. Men of Israel, hear these words. And what is the very first thing, what's the first subject that comes out of Peter's mouth as he is witnessing to them? 
The very first thing, the thing that is most central, the thing that he focuses on, is Jesus. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what he goes on to do is he describes the earthly ministry of Jesus in a really short, succinct kind of way. What he does is he's identifying to them who Jesus is. Do you see that? Notice what he does. He wants them to be crystal clear that they understand the Jesus that he's talking about. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, that is, you know, the Jesus, the one who's from Nazareth. That was a very common day, uh, name in those days, Jesus. So he, uh, he identifies the one who's from Nazareth. And then he says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders. And let's continue on. And signs that God did through him, notice this, in your midst. That is, they saw the signs and the wonders that God was attesting that Jesus Christ was indeed who he said he was. And notice the emphasis, as you yourself know. And so he is preaching to a crowd that has had interaction with Jesus. He's preaching to people who had seen and heard and touched and listened to who and what Jesus was. And so the first point I want us to see is that he identifies who Jesus is. He makes it crystal clear. This is the Jesus that I'm talking about. You should know who I'm talking about. So the focus begins with Jesus. Um, This is really significant because so many times when I hear in different churches that I'm at, different preachers that I hear, different radio, maybe messages or or just conversations that I've had, I think so oftentimes uh, we can get confused. And what we do when we try to present the gospel, when we try to present what Jesus has done, we don't focus on Jesus and we make other things, other secondary, maybe tertiary issues, the focus. And so we talk about church membership and we talk about church attendance and we talk about giving something to God as if he needed anything. And we talk about raising your hand and praying a prayer. And all those things are, 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 are okay. They're not, they're not bad. But we don't focus on the key person of the gospel, and that is Jesus. And we fail to identify with that person and help that person understand who Jesus is. Look ahead with me at verse 36. I think we have it up on the screen. If not, look in your Bibles. This is so important. Peter considers it so important that the people that he is presenting this gospel to understand uh, who Jesus is, that he reiterates this. It's not on the screen, but it's okay. Verse 36. Look in your Bibles. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him what? Who is this Jesus? God has made him both Lord, that is Peter identifying Jesus with the God of the Old Testament, which is very significant to the Jews. Um, Basically he says, you know the God that you worship and serve and believe in? That's Jesus. Jesus is God. He says that God has made Jesus Lord, and he's also made him Christ, that is, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish promised Messiah. You could say, Savior. And so what I want us to see is that Peter takes great pains to focus on Jesus and to make it very clear, this is the Jesus that I am identifying. This is the Jesus. He did signs and wonders. He said he was the Son of God. He said he was the Savior. He said he would die for your sins. This is the Jesus that I'm talking about. About. And so application number one, if you're taking notes, what this means is that first of all, we need to identify who Jesus is. When you are sharing with your coworker at, uh, at work, when you're sharing with a father or a mother or maybe a friend who is not a believer, the first thing I encourage you to do is help them identify 
who Jesus is. Now that may seem kind of redundant to you. That may seem like an unnecessary step to you. But I would suggest to you that it's not. It's not all that unnecessary because you may be thinking in your mind, everybody knows who Jesus is. You may be thinking, why do I need to spend time with this person, um, helping them to see who Jesus is? Uh, I would venture to say that you're partly right and you're partly wrong. Most people in America, uh, most people in this community uh, have heard the name of Jesus. Uh, there's not many people who don't, when you say, oh, let me tell you about Jesus, and they're like, who are you talking about? Jesus? You know, that's not probably going to happen here. Um, but I would venture to say that when you begin to bring the name of Jesus into your conversations, people have something that comes to their mind. They identify Jesus as someone by default, and I would suggest that oftentimes they will, they will not identify in their minds the Jesus that you are talking about. The Jesus that you want to share with them is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Jesus that Jesus says. It's not the Jesus that Jesus says he is. And so I would suggest uh, there are different kinds of Jesus. Uh, I would say that people identify uh, the Jesus of religion. Uh, he may be the Jesus of religion. Um, other religions uh, in our world and in our community identify Jesus differently than how Jesus does. And so when you talk about someone, about Jesus, they may think, oh, he's a moral teacher. He's just someone who teaches us to be good and to do right. That's what Jesus does. They identify him as a moral teacher. They may identify him as a prophet in the line of many prophets. That's exactly what Islam does. They recognize that he spoke for God. He's a prophet, but he's just a prophet. And Muhammad is the ultimate prophet. They may be thinking that he is uh, an enlightened man, someone who has a greater understanding of divinity, a greater understanding of his own divinity and our own divinity. He's on a little higher spiritual plane than you, but he's certainly not the son of God. And so, when you're talking with people, they, they may think that he is the Jesus of, the, of, of religion. They may think that he's the Jesus of what I would call Christian liberalism. Uh, Christian liberalism. They may think that he's merely a good man. That's what Christian liberalism thinks Jesus is. Just a good man. He's moral. He's upright. He's a good example. He died for what he believed in. He fought for what he believed in, and he was a martyr. But he certainly didn't claim to be God. He certainly didn't do miracles. He certainly uh, didn't die for anyone's sin. And so he, when you talk with people, they may be thinking of the Jesus of liberalism, Christian liberalism. Uh, uh, they may be uh, thinking of the Jesus of pop culture, um, and so uh, they may think that he is uh, kind of what our popular culture thinks. They may think that he is uh, maybe the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code, um, which is the image that we have here. I don't know if you've seen the Da Vinci Code or read the Da Vinci Code, a very popular book about four or five years ago. Uh, the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code and all of the slew of material that then followed that book and that movie. Uh, the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code was a Jew who uh, was married to Mary Magdalene, who had a bunch of kids and a royal bloodline, and it makes for a really entertaining story, but bad fact. Um, and so they may be thinking, when you talk about Jesus, that may be what they have in mind, is Dan's, Dan Brown's Jesus. Um, he may be uh, what I would call homeboy Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen this t-shirt or not, Jesus is my homeboy. Um, yeah, it's funny, <laughs> and borderline sacrilegious, I think. Um, 
But that's kind of the hip-hop Jesus, the Jesus who's your buddy, who's your friend, who's your pal, who, you know, you want to wear a cross because it's a cool symbol. When you, when you talk about Jesus, they may have in mind this guy, the guy who's on the front of their t-shirt. That may be who they're thinking when you talk about Jesus to them. What about, what about this, uh, the Jesus of what I would call New Ageism, New Ageism. Have any of you ever heard of a guy by the name of Deepak Chopra or Deepak Chopra? Anyone? Okay, maybe a handful. It's this guy right here. Uh, Deepak, I think, Chopra. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he's, kind of the, um, he's kind of the figurehead of what I would call New Enlightenment, uh, New Ageism, Eastern philosophy, religion. <laughs> that's what he is, uh, essentially. Uh, who is the Jesus of Deepak Chopra? Well, this is the Jesus to him. He says, I see Christ as a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. And so when you're talking with someone who's influenced by this kind of thinking, you may get the Jesus of Deepak Chopra. We can get him off the screen. (laughs) Um, And so all that to say, the first thing we need to do is we need to help people identify who Jesus really is. I mean, who is he really? Who does he say he is? Who did Jesus say he was? And so the first thing I want us to see, a clear gospel presentation focuses on Jesus and helps people identify the Jesus of Jesus. Number two, a clear gospel presentation not only focuses on Jesus, but a clear gospel presentation uh, does this. It focuses and identifies and includes Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. Let me uh, read uh, once again verses 23 and 24, because what we see Peter doing, he identifies who Jesus is, he wants them to know, this is the guy that I'm talking about, and then he talks about what Jesus did. That is, he died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. Verse 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he talks about Jesus' death. And then in verse 24, he talks about Jesus' resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by it. And so essentially what Peter says um, is twofold. First of all, he focuses on the death of Jesus. Uh, notice, Notice the wording here. It says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so the first thing that Peter wants his hearers to know is that Jesus' death was not an accident. He wants them to know that it wasn't just something that happened. It wasn't just something that was unplanned. It wasn't something that was forced upon Jesus. It's not like Jesus didn't have any control over it. In fact, what he wants them to know is, is, is that it's quite the opposite. This was God's plan. The death, the murder of his son was God's plan. He knew that it would happen and he determined that it would happen. And so he says, it's not a fluke. And then he gets right at the heart of it and he says, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men, referring to the Romans. And so the Romans and the Jews both had responsibility for the death of Jesus. Ultimately, when we take a look at the greater New Testament revelation, what we find out is that, yes, the Jews of that era and of that time in Jerusalem literally nailed Jesus to the cross with the help and the aid of the Romans. But what we find out is that everyone killed 
Jesus. What we find out when you look at the rest of the, of the New Testament is that it was God's plan because Jesus had to do something on the cross. There was purpose. There was intention behind it. Jesus died for our sins, for the sins of humanity. We read a scripture out of 1 Corinthians 15, and it makes it very clear. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that, G- that, that Christ died. That Christ died, and here's the key word, key words, for our sins. That means that he died in place of us. Uh, Biblically, we say it was a substitutionary sacrifice. What that means is that it was a substitute. We deserved death. We deserved physical death, spiritual death. We deserved to physically die, and we deserved the Father's wrath that Jesus bore. It was substitutionary, but it was also a sacrifice. That is, it was a death. Jesus really and literally died in our place. And so what I think uh, this sermon does is it identifies Jesus died. And he died for a reason. He died for a purpose. And that purpose was so that he would die in our place because of our sin. My sin, your sin, the sin of all of humanity for all time. And so a clear gospel presentation includes Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. And so application, a couple applications that I want us to take away. Number one, uh, share the truth about sin. Share the truth about sin. Uh, in our culture, this is a, sin is an increasingly um, questioned and unpopular idea. The idea that there is personal responsibility. The idea that there is an, there is an ultimate morality. There is an ultimate right or wrong Uh, there's an ultimate black or white, and that somehow, uh, if God is real, which he is, and he establishes that moral code, what is right and wrong, and he can therefore determine as our creator what we should be about and what we should do, um, and that when we break that, when we fail to do that, that it's called sin. That's an unpopular notion. And so what I want us to do is this. Not only do we focus on who Jesus is, but we have to bring to light the fact that you sin and that I sin and that we are not right with God. We are not right with God. We were born not right with God. What we do makes us not right with God. This is the bad news. The gospel is good news. Uh, but we have to have the bad news before the good news. I don't know about you. It's probably a matter of personal preference. But when someone says to me this line, Trey, I've got to tell you something. There's good news and there's bad news. Which do you want first? I don't know what you say, but I'll tell you what I say. I say, give me the bad news first. Because I hear the bad news, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, then there's good news to kind of redeem that, you know. That's the way the gospel works. You have to understand that there's bad news in order for the good news to be good news. And the bad news is that we sin, and that we've broken fellowship with God, and that his wrath is upon us, and that it's deserved. That's the bad news. Um, And so we have to understand the bad news before we can appreciate and appropriate the good news. Let me share by way of example. Um, I may have used this illustration before, but it's a good one, so I'll use it uh, again. Um, If you were a passenger aboard the original Titanic, when you got on board, let's just imagine you're getting on board the Titanic, and you're going up uh, the railway, the walkway, and you're getting off of land, and you're making your way into the ship, And as you get into the ship, uh, one of the uh, officers says, hey, welcome to the Titanic. Let me uh, instruct you as to where you're going to be staying. And also, let me give you something that's very important. It's a life jacket. You need to cling to it. You need to make sure you know where it is, just in case, by chance, 
we have any difficulty. Now, in that moment, if you were one of those passengers, what would be your response to that life jacket? You would probably laugh and say, as they did in that day, the ship is unsinkable. It's unsinkable. I don't need it. This is really not helpful. I don't want to keep track with this life preserver that can eventually save my life. And so you, it's just not really good news. But on the day, uh, the fateful day, when the iceberg came and the ship is sinking, and maybe you've seen the movie, or maybe you're like my wife and refuses to see the movie because <laughs> it's sad, um, which is fine. Um, you know, in that moment when the ship is tipping upward, you've seen the scenes and people are, you know, getting thrown into the cold, icy waters. Uh, that life jacket that you should have received when you got on board, that's pretty valuable, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty valuable because it's good news uh, that you have that, but you don't know you need it until you recognize that there's bad news, that the, the ship is sinking and that there's imminent death. That's the, the bad news of the gospel, that the ship of humanity is sinking and that there's imminent spiritual death for everyone. And then we share the good news. And the good news is that, uh, according to our illustration, there's a life preserver. <laughs> and that life preserver is, is Jesus, so to speak. And so, number one, share the truth about sin. Number two, not only do we share the bad news, uh, but we share the good news. Share the good news that Jesus died for our sins in our place And when we understand rightly the bad news, that's wonderful news. That is a gospel that you long for and that you want, that you can be reconnected to your creator, that you can have your sins forgiven, that you can be wiped clean, that you can have a clear conscience, that you can be renewed and experience life. You've you've been dead, spiritually speaking, and you can be made alive. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we've seen... A clear gospel presentation focuses on Jesus. It includes Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. And thirdly, in verse 38, a clear gospel presentation invites a response. It invites a response. Let's look together at verse 38 and notice what Peter does. In fact, let's read verse 37 before and uh, then we'll read 38. So what happens after Peter preaches this message? Verse 37, now when, he had heard, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what should we do? And so they believe and they accept everything that Peter said about who Jesus is, about his death and burial and resurrection, and they want to know, how do we respond to this? Because a clear gospel presentation not only focuses on Jesus, not only speaks about his death, not only speaks about human sin, not only speaks about his, uh, his dying for our place and that there's good news, but it offers an invitation. There is a response that is necessary. And so we see Peter tell us what that response should be. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are essentially a couple things that Peter uh, commands that they do. One is the major imperative, that is, it's primary in the text. It's the first significant command that he wants them to do. And then there's a secondary command, and that's second in the text. We're going to take a look at both of these commands. He says, repent and be baptized. He talks about this command and that command, and then he says, this is what will happen when you obey these commands. Primarily, I'll argue, this is what happens when you obey the first command, when you repent. Notice the key word for. 
for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what you will receive. And you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the first response of repentance. Uh, Notice, he says, first of all, simply repent. Uh, This is a hard word. It may may seem like an easy concept, but it's kind of a hard word to to define because it has different nuances in different contexts. But at the the heart of the matter, when you look uh, in the original language, what repentance basically means is to change your mind about something or to reconsider something. That's at the heart of of repentance. And so it's a change of mind, it's a reconsideration of what you believe that then leads to an outward behavior. And so it's the inward that then uh, relates to the outward. You change your mind and then you change your behavior. That's essentially what repentance is. And so what Peter wants them to do is to change what they think about Jesus. Because who did they believe Jesus was? Well, They might have been involved in his crucifixion. They certainly didn't believe that he was the Jewish Messiah. They certainly did not believe that he was the Son of God. They certainly did not believe that his death was uh, in any way for their sin. And they did not believe in any way at that point that the rumor that was swirling, that he had been resurrected, that he was actually alive. They didn't believe any of that. And so Peter says, you have to change your mind about Jesus. You have to repent. And then when you do that, it will lead to a change of behavior. And so first of all, he says, you need to repent. Uh, Biblically, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, repentance is simply the first step in what the biblical authors call faith or belief. Uh, They're synonyms, faith or belief, because what faith and belief essentially is is trusting in something. That's what faith means. It means to place your faith, to place your trust, to believe with your heart and your life in something. And so biblically, repentance is simply that first step because before you can place your faith that Jesus can forgive your sins, before you place your faith in Jesus being the only way to heaven, before you believe and place your faith in what Jesus has done, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to believe rightly about Jesus, right? And so he says, repent. And inherent in that, I think, is a call for them to then believe in what Jesus has done. Uh, Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, uh, and still in in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, I think makes this uh, really clear. Uh, Paul, in Acts 20, 21, it's not on the screen, he is giving a defense, and he's summarizing the gospel that he, he preaches. And it's not a different gospel. Peter, Paul, all of them, <laughs> they preach the same gospel. And he defends, he says, this is the gospel that I preach. And I think this makes it very clear that repentance and faith are almost synonymous. It's the first step of, of believing. Verse 21, 2021, Peter summarizes his gospel message by saying this. He, sa- he says, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, notice this, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the grammar here, I think, makes it clear that faith is the, fir- is, the, is the kind of summary of repentance. Repentance is the first step of faith. They're synonymous. And so Peter, what I think he's doing here is he is inviting them to have a faith response. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, uh, going along, what you'll find out is there's a summary statement And in that summary statement, you'll find out that it says that they believed in him. Uh, 
it says, all who believed. And so it uses this language of believing, of faith, synonymously with repentance. And so the first thing, very simply, that I want us to see is that a gospel invitation demands an invitation. It demands a response. And the first response is simply to place your faith, your trust, in what Jesus Christ has done. We're going to get back to that in a second. But secondly, I want to deal briefly, very briefly, uh, with the second command. Because Paul says, repent, and then he says, and be baptized. Um, this is a, a, a something that we can spend many, many sermons on. But I want to make a couple observations that I, I hope will be helpful. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice the order of the commands here, right? He says, repent and be baptized. The order is significant. It's in that order for a reason, and that's because, biblically speaking, in the New Testament, you repent and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and then as a response to your faith in Jesus Christ, you get baptized. That's, that's how it works. That is very clear throughout the New Testament. It's faith and then baptism. Secondly, um, hopefully I can make this clear. When you look at this in the original languages, essentially what you find out is that repentance, the word repent, the commandment to repent, is linked with for the forgiveness of sins. And so if you look at the text, essentially the, the command repent grammatically is linked for the forgiveness of sins. And so what that means is that this is consistent throughout the Bible. We repent, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and the result is, what we get is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And so what that means, secondly, is that uh, baptism becomes a secondary command. What you have is, it should read, this is Trey's loosely paraphrase according to the grammar, repent and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and each of you, he goes to speak in the third person, and each of you who do that, then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That, I think, is what is happening in this verse. And so very simply to wrap up, number four, application number four, invite people to place their faith in Jesus. It's really simple, but a gospel invitation without an invitation is not a gospel invitation. And so we need to ask people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. I have done this myself, and I've seen other people do it from the pulpit or wherever. We go through the steps. We help them identify who Jesus is. We help clarify this is the Jesus of Jesus. We uh, identify that Jesus died for their sins personally. We help them understand what faith is. And then we say, okay, that's great. See ya. And we don't ask them to respond to those truths. A clear gospel invitation includes an invitation. Uh, To wrap up, I want to share with you a closing illustration. In in his book, uh, in fact, this book is out on the Catalyst list, so if you're a reader, I really encourage you to pick it up. It's called The Seven Principles of an Evangelistic Life. Um, Not a catchy title, but it's a really good book. Uh, Seven Principles. And and Dr. Doug Cecil um, identifies what he says are three elements of faith, of, of biblical faith. And so we're asking them to place their faith in Jesus. But what is biblical faith? It involves three things, according to Dr. Cecil. Uh, He says, number one, it includes the knowledge of the facts. And that's simple. If you want someone to place their faith in something, they need to understand the facts. Number two, it involves an intellectual assent to those facts. So not only do you have to know about the facts, but you have to intellectually believe them. Your mind has to believe them. And then number three, it's an act of the will. It's an act of the will to appropriate those facts to myself. And so... You have to know the facts, you have to mentally assent to the facts, and then you have to give your will to the facts, if you will. And so um, P. 
people uh, who are unbelievers, I think some of them are in the first category. So you're going to come across people at work, in your family, um, that are in the first category. That is, they don't have the correct knowledge of the facts. This is the person who believes the Jesus of religion, the Jesus of Christian liberalism, the Jesus of pop culture, the Jesus of the new ageism. They have the facts wrong. They are in the first category. They don't understand. They don't under, understand who Jesus is. And so people in that first category need an invitation to discover who Jesus really is. You need to invite them on a journey to discover the biblical and the correct Jesus. You can do this a lot of ways. There's all sorts of good books. You can walk through them with the gospel. I did that recently with a young man about four or five months ago, and we walked through the book of John, and I wanted him to understand this is who Jesus is. And so people in the first category need an invitation. They need an invitation to discover who Jesus is. People in the second category, they have the correct knowledge, and they have intellectual assent to that knowledge, but they don't have an act of the will. They have not trusted in Jesus. And, and so people in that category need an invitation to personally act on what they believe. They need an invitation to put into practice what they say they believe. Does that make sense? Here's an illustration. Um, yeah, you'll have to forgive my, my illustrations today. They're of a Titanic, of a ship that sank, and of an airplane that uh, crashes. Who knows? It just happens, right? Um, so here's the story. Let's say that you're uh, climbing aboard, aboard an airplane and you're had it, heading out to L.A. because it's a fun place to visit. Um, and so uh, the tail end of the flight uh, is, you know, is, is arriving. But you know what happens when you get on, on, on board a flight? Um, you get on board and you're getting buckled up and the flight attendant comes up and she does her little deal, right? You know what I'm talking about if you've flown? This is the safety uh, uh, mechanisms of this airplane. This is how you buckle your seatbelt, you know, those kind of things. This is how you get your flotation bite. In case of an emergency, there will be slides out the door and yada, 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 and lights to follow, right? Shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. They give this little informational deal that in case you happen to go down over the water or whatever, this is what you should do. So there's facts being presented. How many of you have ever been on a plane where anyone ever listens to that? <laughs> have you ever? I mean, it, it is not, okay, here's, here's an it, admission. I actually try to listen to it most of the time, uh, maybe because I'm a worrywart, but <laughs> it's mostly out of respect. That poor lady or guy is up there doing their deal and everyone's reading their book and playing with their iPhones and chatting and I'm like, that's so rude. So don't be rude on the airplane. Listen to them. So let's say in this scenario, you're over LA and you're flying and you see the beautiful uh, Pacific coastline and you're about to land. And to make a long story short, something malfunctions. You're going down quick. It's mayhem. It's madness. You're fearful. Everyone's panicking. And boom, you hit the water. There's a crash. There's a crack in the airplane. Uh, there's panic. Water's beginning to come in. And in that moment, uh, you need to know some things. In that moment, you notice that there's a person uh, who has not listened to the flight instructor in that moment. They didn't pay attention. They were playing something on their iPad um, or their iPhone or any eye instrument. And uh, they are not paying attention. And they don't know how to get to their life vest. They don't know where they should go to get on the ramp. They don't know that uh, there is a safety boat that's going to be available if you simply slide out the wing of the door or whatever. They don't have the information. They can't process it. Water's coming up. And because they lack the right information, they perish. 
they're lost. There's another person on this flight who has the right information. They listened. Uh, they actually put up their eye gadget or whatever, and they put down their book, and they listen to the flight attendant. They know exactly what to do. They know where to get all the safety equipment. They know where to head. But their wife of 20 years is sitting next to them, and she did not survive the landing. Uh, she perished. And this man is beside himself. And so in that moment, he has the correct information. He knows what to do. He has an intellectual, intellectual assent that the life preserver and everything that is there will save him. Uh, but he's distraught and he chooses uh, to stay with his wife. And so he's lost. Um, and then there's you. And you are the hero or the good person in this story because you actually listened. You put away your eye gadgets or whatever and you listened. You know what to do and you act upon them. You get your life vest from underneath your seat and you strap it on and you know that on the, to the left side of the airplane that there's going to be a ramp and you slide down that ramp and waiting for you there is going to be a, life, uh, a lifeboat. And you do all of those things. You have the intellectual knowledge of the facts. You assent that those things will indeed save you if you act upon them. And you actually act upon them. And so this is the three categories of people. And so when you invite people to place their faith in Jesus, you need to determine where they are. Are they number one? Do they have an incorrect understanding of Jesus? My guess is that most people, at least in this community, that you will come in contact with will be in the second category. They understand, for the most part, who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. They have an intellectual assent to those facts, but they have not placed their personal faith in Jesus. They are like the second person who knows how to be saved, but they, for whatever reason, choose not to act upon it. And so in, in conclusion, we have heard a, a clear gospel presentation, I think, from the lips of Peter. As a result, notice what happened. It says about 3,000 souls, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. It, it was, must have been a great sermon. We probably have just a portion of it, uh, but God's Spirit blessed it. There was a clear gospel presentation, and it was effective. People came to faith in Jesus. There is power in a clear gospel presentation. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. And so Grace Bible Church, I want to ask us and I want to ask myself as the one who hopefully presents that gospel every Sunday, and I want to ask you who hopefully understands what the gospel is and hopefully is articulating that gospel where you live, in your family, in your office, at your play uh, area, place, wherever it may be, Will we present a clear gospel? We will present a clear gospel if we focus on Jesus. We will present a clear gospel if we include the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. And we will present a clear gospel if we invite a faith response. And so will we?